everybody. Welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick Vinzant. Coming up in this episode, we're talking astrobiology and annoying relatives. Astrobiology is our quest to understand life. And that's it. I mean, all of life. So life here on Earth, the potential for life elsewhere, how life started here, how it's evolved here, whether or not we could find it elsewhere. The idea of this shadow biosphere. So a lot of our methods uh, in chemistry, in biology, are very much based on life as we know it. And so the question is, you know, could we be missing out so much so that there, there could even be living things on Earth? that aren't life as we know it. And I, I love these ideas. Like, you know, what else could there be? Could there be mineral life forms? Could an entire planet be considered a living being? We're now thinking that, that there's at least something like 1.6 planets for every star. And so now we're looking at several hundreds of billions, maybe even a trillion planets in our galaxy alone, which means other galaxies might be also very rich in planets. And if that's the case, then it really starts to feel like it would be a huge waste of space if we're the only show in town. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. So I'm sure that all of us at some point in our lives have looked up at the night sky and wondered what else is out there. Is there any other life out there? And if there is, is it going to be like us? Or is it different in ways that we could never even imagine? Our first guest is one of the people leading that search for extraterrestrial life. And in that search, there's some really big questions about how life on Earth started. What exactly is life? Where could we find it in the solar system and even beyond? And then what happens if we do find it? This is astrobiologist Dr. Graham Lau. So astrobiology, that's essentially looking for life on other planets, right? You know, I get that a lot, uh, but it's, it's it's more than that, really. Uh, astrobiology, like if, if you ask someone at NASA, they kind of have like their standard uh, uh, way of explaining that, that astrobiology is trying to understand the origins, evolution, and distribution of life in the universe. Uh, but when I think about astrobiology, what really hits me first is that astrobiology is our quest to understand life. And that's it. I mean, it, all of life. So life here on Earth the potential for life elsewhere, how life started here, how it's evolved here, whether or not we could find it elsewhere. Uh, and, and it's a really important thing. You know, it's, it's one of those deeper questions we've had with us since, you know, since before we started writing down our questions. You know, we, we wanted to know, like, you know, why are we here? What is this place? What is around us? Are we thinking? Are we alone? Is there more than what we see? So do we know how life on Earth started? We definitely don't. And so there's a, a great field out there in the origin of life research uh, where people are, are working really hard to try to figure out how life might have started here on Earth. Uh, there's a question, you know, what was life brought here from elsewhere, like maybe from Mars or, or Venus maybe, uh, and then crashed here and then started evolving? Uh, or did life start here? And so people are doing experiments and modeling and trying to figure out uh, whether or not life started here, if so, where and how and when, uh, those are huge questions. Do we have any kind of an answer? Like what's the best theory so far? That's a great question too because like, there's actually some competing ideas right now. Uh, for instance, uh, uh, Dave Deemer and Bruce uh, Damer uh, recently released a paper on their hot spring hypothesis for the origin of life where they posit that life had to have dry land 
on Earth, uh, specifically around hot springs uh, and hot spring environments, with a, a lot of wetting and then drying cycles going back and forth uh, to allow for the chemicals of life, the, uh, these biological molecules uh, that form all of life as we know it, for those molecules to have formed, uh, they, they hypothesize that you need this dry, hot spring environment where there's wetting and drying going on back and forth. However, there are others who think that maybe life started on the bottom of the ocean around hydrothermal vents. Uh, ever since the 1970s, we've been exploring these uh, these vents on the ocean floor where, where superheated seawater moving through the crust is bringing out a whole bunch of metals and other elements uh, in a high-temperature regime and making these big chimneys that we call black smokers. Uh, and so some think that maybe life could have started there, which also gives us good reason to then wonder if we could find life in some of the icy worlds of our solar system like Europa or Enceladus. Um, but the true answer is we really don't know yet. Um, you know, we, we have some ideas of what the, you know, the, the, the early, early days for life could have looked like, um, what kind of things might have happened along the way for creating the first cells and for, for starting the process of having a genetic code that can evolve through time, that, that can replicate and make more molecules and can evolve through time uh, through billions of years to make us. So, I mean, if it essentially came from somewhere else, it would basically just hitch a ride on an asteroid? Is that kind of – or a meteor or whatever the correct word would be? Yeah, exactly. So this, this idea of panspermia, which has actually been with us for a very long time, uh, the term, to my knowledge, was first coined by Anaxagoras uh, in ancient Greece. Um, and the idea has been molded through time with us as well. But the idea of panspermia is that um, – and, and, and the, the word literally means seeds everywhere. And the idea is that maybe life could be seeded on Earth from somewhere else and vice versa. Um, and in that case, so, you know, we have these – you know, asteroid bombardments that, that, you know, when large things strike the Earth or the Moon or other worlds, sometimes during that process, the rocks on that world can actually be launched into space uh, due to the impact. Uh, and as we've done lots of modeling to show that life as we know it could survive inside of one of those rocks being launched off of a planet and then transported through space and even through the process of crashing onto another planet. Uh, and so it is quite possible, but Currently, we don't have any evidence that it's ever actually happened, uh, but it is a really intriguing idea for us to study. Um, of course, you know, if, if panspermia did happen, uh, we still have the problem of the origin of life. It still had to start somewhere and somehow. Um, but there are, are some out there who've wondered maybe, maybe life could have started in a more favorable environment on Mars, for instance, uh, or maybe in their early solar system, maybe Venus was the really cool place to be uh, for living things, and, and maybe life came here from Mars or Venus. Um, when people start talking about panspermia from outside of the solar system, uh, it's still quite possible, but you start uh, losing the probability because of, of the distances between stars uh, for things, things to have traveled through space through time. I mean, when we're talking about you know the origin, when we're going back millions, tens, millions, however long, were other planets in the solar system actually more habitable for life than Earth? Yeah, so that's one of my favorite things. Like, I love Venus so much. It's such a beautiful world. It's Earth twin, really, uh, as far as you know, its size and its composition is concerned. Uh, Earth is far more dense, but Venus is still a very intriguing world. And early in the early in the solar system, Venus was very likely far more Earth-like uh, than it is now. 
it would have been right in that, that beautiful area around a star called the Goldilocks zone, uh, where liquid water could survive on the surface. And there, there's some people out there who've done, you know, modeling to suggest there could have been oceans on Venus long ago, but Venus, uh, these past billion years or 500 million years or so has undergone not only a runaway greenhouse effect that has created this very thick atmosphere, uh, the pressure at the surface of Venus is about 92 times more than the pressure we have here at sea level on Earth. And so it's very thick. Uh, and because of the runaway greenhouse effect, sunlight gets absorbed and, and stuck inside, just like you know the greenhouse that we have going on right now with you know, climate here on Earth and the warming of our planet. Uh, that warming happened on Venus you know, in an amazing way. So the surface of Venus is very close to 900 degrees Fahrenheit on average, uh, which is pretty darn warm. And uh, nothing that we know as far as life is concerned can currently survive on the surface of Venus. Um, however, you know, long ago, maybe something did live there. Maybe, maybe Venus had a biosphere long ago. When you guys kind of classify things, like what, are, what is considered life? Hmm. It's kind of intriguing, right? Um, we actually do not know what life is exactly. And so you'll hear people talk about this. They're going to like, what is life is a huge question, and it's, it's kind of an important question for us to, to do astrobiology and to search not just for life as we know it somewhere else, but for us to even try to, to contemplate you know, life as we don't know it, life that's different than life here on Earth. We kind of have to have a good working idea of what life is. Now, there have been several hundred you know, suggestions uh, for what a definition of life could be. Uh, sometimes you might hear what's called the NASA definition of life. Uh, and that is that, that life is a self-contained chemical system capable of undergoing Darwinian evolution. And it's a, it's a pretty good definition, but it misses out in a lot of ways. Uh, for instance, you know, if, if we create artificial intelligence it, it, or if humans ourselves become a post-biological being and integrate ourselves into our computers and our machines, uh, are we still alive at that point? Is that life? Uh, and that's a huge question. Uh, there could be forms of life out there that kind of really – break through um, some of these definitions we've had. And, you know, currently a lot of us are learning a lot more about viruses right now, for instance. Uh, the virus has always been, you know, kind of on this fringe of trying to understand life. I, mean, I remember as a kid, you know, we were told viruses are not alive. Uh, that's what the textbook said. And now, you know, I'm, I'm not actually sure myself. I, I kind of think of viruses as, as some part of life, that they, they are some kind of living biological machine. Uh, and so, you know, it's intriguing. There's, there's a, a lot of questions about what life really is. And if you really want to go off the deep end, then, uh, you know, trying to figure out what life is is hard enough. But then trying to figure out what intelligence is, or even worse, what consciousness is, uh, those become some really huge questions. I feel like you get a lot of headaches. Do you get a lot of headaches just <laughs> thinking about all this stuff? You know, it's, I don't know. Like, it's, it's actually, it's kind of fun, right? Like, you can sit down just for hours, just maul through the potential for for what is life, what could be out there. You know, I grew up watching so much science fiction and reading science fiction stories and playing science fiction video games. And I, I love these ideas. Like, you know, what else could there be? Could there be mineral life forms? Could an entire planet be considered a living being? Uh, could there be living things that can survive in space and not only survive, but actually thrive in the environment of space? And there are so many questions about what's possible. How do, you, how do you study a place where you can't go? Absolutely, yeah. So 
you know, astrobiologists, we all, we all come to the field from, you know, different backgrounds. Uh, some astrobiologists are, are studying oceanography and trying to better understand those hydrothermal vents. Some astrobiologists focus almost solely in the realm of microbiology, and they, they try to understand the, the evolution of various, you know, uh, ways that, that microbes have lived on Earth and how they function through time and how their, their enzymes have functioned through time. Uh, some astrobiologists are doing a lot of planetary science, and they're trying to figure out where on the surfaces or the interiors of other worlds could we find life. Uh, me, myself, I, I came from a geochemistry background. Uh, so originally, I, I started off studying biology and chemistry. I then spent some time studying astrophysics before finally jumping into my, my PhD in geology, where I really focused in, in geochemistry and mineralogy. And so for me, I, I was looking, and I'm, I'm actually still working on a paper right now uh, from some research back in 2014 already, um, where we went up to the Arctic to a place uh, called Ellesmere Island. It's one of the farthest north land masses on the planet uh, to a place, a valley called Borkfjord Pass, where in this valley there's a glacier. And on top of this glacier, water coming up from the surface below is coming out and depositing these large mats of yellow material on the ice. And that yellow material is sulfur. And so we've been studying the kinds of organisms that thrive in this sulfur material on top of a glacier, uh, what they can teach us about sulfur and its role in biology, uh, what the mineralogy and geochemistry can tell us about not just that site and, and other polar environments, but also what we might find if we go out you know, to a world, say, like Europa, uh, one of Jupiter's moons, which has an icy surface and a lot of sulfur on its icy surface. And so, you know, can we use some of the tools we develop and the techniques and, and, and the knowledge we develop from this site here on Earth in the Arctic and apply that to looking for life on Jupiter's moon Europa? Well, so a lot of us astrobiologists are, are doing that kind of work. We're trying to understand uh, what are the signs of life or, or biosignatures. Uh, what, what, what diagnostic uh, evidence is given to us from living processes that we can find if we go to another world? When when we kind of use the definition that we're currently using for life, what are what are some of the basic like building blocks that that a place needs to even have that? Is there some basic things that you have to have this, you have to have that? You know, uh, in in the, the the long history of us trying to to you know, define and characterize life, there are some of those key things that we've come up with. You know that that life. Uh, has to have energy. Life has to have a metabolism. Uh, life has to grow. It has to evolve, and some of these kinds of things. And so, at a very base kind of understanding, that that's kind of what we start looking for. Uh, for instance, with with the Viking landers on Mars back in the nineteen seventies, uh, we sent them there. They they were the first and so far the only missions um, to Mars that were specifically looking for life. And on board, they they had four biological tests. Uh, but in general, uh, three of those biological tests were, were very much based on life as we know it, uh, assuming that, that life on Mars would be some kind of organism like we know here and would produce the same kinds of chemicals if it was metabolizing material that we gave it. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, we, we didn't have a positive confirmation. Uh, we do have a potentially questionable uh, 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 result from one of the experiments that has never been confirmed. And so we, we say that we, you know, we, we did not de detect life because of that. Um, and actually, the, the next Mars rover from NASA, uh, Perseverance, will be the, the, the next uh, spacecraft on Mars 
the next rover on Mars to actually look for signs of life uh, after the Viking landers. Uh, but when we start looking for these signs, you know, what we're looking for, there's a lot of things we can look at. You know, if we got really lucky and we found something walking in front of our camera, you know, or some like little like, you know, multi-leg or if we were in Europa's oceans and the fins came swimming by us, uh, I mean, that'd be pretty cool, right? That, that, that's, a, that's a no-brainer. You know, we, we could look at that and say, hey, that's life. Uh, but, you know, if we only have chemistry to look at, say we're looking for signs of past life in a rock on Mars, uh, then we might look at, look at, you know, some of the chemical signatures that remain from living processes. Uh, so when life is, you know, metabolizing, it can leave behind some signatures of those metabolisms. Uh, for instance, it can, it can cause a differentiation in the isotopes that are present in a rock sample for us to study. Um, we also can look for things... Um, like the left-handedness and right-handedness of molecules. Uh, so it turns out in chemistry, uh, just like you have your left hand and your right hand, and they're mirror images of each other, uh, but if you lay them one on top of the other, your thumbs don't line up. Uh, so just like we have left hand and right hand that are mirror images but aren't the exact same, uh, there are molecules, uh, many of them, that, that are mirror images and yet aren't the same, and life as we know it actually has a preference for the left-handed or the right-handed. Uh, for our amino acids, it's one way. For our sugars, it's another way. And so we actually wonder, you know, could other life out there, if it is out there, also have that selection for left-handedness or right-handedness in certain molecules? And so we can look for that. And there, there's actually, you know, a whole realm of these biosignatures, things that we're trying to, trying to understand. Are they definitive signs of life? And if so, you know, can we find them on another world? How do we... I mean, is there a chance, though, that we're just testing in the wrong way, so to speak? Absolutely. A really cool paper came out some years back by Carol Cleland and Chris Kaiba, uh, where they hypothesized that there could be a shadow biosphere here on Earth. The idea of this shadow biosphere, so a lot of our methods uh, in chemistry and biology are very much based on life as we know it. And so the question is, you know, could we be missing out? So much so that there, there could even be living things on Earth that aren't life as we know it, and so we, we actually don't see them because they're in this shadow biosphere that we're not observing. And it's a really good question, you know. The, the truth is we, we just don't know. Uh, it's one reason why scientifically we, we want to be uh, as agnostic as possible when it comes to you know looking for these potential biosignatures um, so that we, we, you know, we, are, we are doing our, our due diligence to try to look for any potential sign of life, even if, it's, even if it's life as we don't know it. To kind of maybe understand this, I guess, in like the dumb guy way, this rock is actually a living thing, and we just didn't realize it. Uh, but there are other things in nature that we, we haven't quite explained yet. Uh, so one of the best examples that actually does come from a rock, uh, one of the examples they used in this original paper is desert varnish. Uh, so if anyone's ever gone out into you know a desert area like the American Southwest or you know, other desert regions around the planet, you might have noticed, you know, that some of the rocks have this, this dark coating on the outside. And, uh, and indeed, many, many ancient peoples, indigenous peoples around, around the globe uh, found those rocks and would actually etch uh, petroglyphs into, the, into that, that, that outer dark material. They, they realized they could, just, they could just chip that dark material away on the outside of these rocks. And so we find a lot of ancient petroglyphs inside of this, this rock varnish. Um, but that rock varnish, or, or desert varnish as it's called, we still don't know entirely uh, if that's being caused uh, by a biological phenomenon, if organisms are causing it, 
or if it's being caused by an inorganic process of chemistry alone. And so it's possible, and this was you know part of that original shadow biosphere idea, was that maybe desert varnish is part of some unknown living process that we just don't know how to look at yet. I mean, it, there seems to be, and look, I think that any anybody who's listened to this in any episodes where we talk to scientists, there's always a lot of kind of unknowns. But is this stuff that we can ever find out? It's a great question, right? I mean, like, it's like our physics right now. I mean, there's so much that we don't know about things like black holes and what happens inside of them. Um, we, we use our knowledge of science. You know, science is a tool to help us better understand our place in the cosmos. But it will, you know, it will always have limitations based on our own abilities. You know, science now is way different than science was 100 years ago. And likewise, 100 years from now, science may be very different as well. And we'll hopefully have better tools for better understanding the universe. And now, very recently, we, we, we started using gravitational waves to look at other phenomena in the universe. And so when it comes to astrobiology and understanding, you know, if there could be some living things out there that we just don't know how to look for yet, um, maybe, you know, in, in the not-too-distant future, there'll be some new instrument that we develop that allows us to see part of that shadow biosphere. Right now... Where are the main focuses where life could be? In our solar system, like, like I said, I love Venus, but Venus is no longer a great candidate, at least on the surface. However, there's a place about 51 kilometers above the surface of Venus where some people are wondering. Uh, it actually has a temperature and pressure regime there that's about the same as the, the surface of Earth at the ocean. Um, and so maybe there could be something living in the clouds of Venus. Uh, but you don't hear about that as much because right now Mars is super sexy. A lot of people are thinking about Mars uh, as, as potentially once having had life. We now know that Mars was very wet in the distant past uh, and then likely lost most of its atmosphere and oceans over time. But maybe maybe we'll find signs of past life or maybe even extant life or, or, or things that are alive right now on Mars. And so we're doing a lot of work there. Also, though, the icy worlds of our solar system are... are you know, really these intriguing hotspots right now for us to try to figure out, you know, if life can originate inside of an ocean, you know, around a hydrothermal vent or at the bottom of an icy shell, uh, you know, could there be living biospheres inside of worlds like Europa uh, and Enceladus? Uh, and if so, can, can we find signs of that life through either plumes of water coming out of these worlds uh, or by, you know, sending a lander down to the surface and trying to look you know, at some of the ice? Uh, and those places are just so intriguing. I honestly, I really love Europa. Uh, we have a mission coming up soon called Europa Clipper. It will go and orbit around Europa and, and help us study the surface a lot more. There is a Europa lander design right now. It's not actually a fully, uh, you know, it, the mission hasn't been you know fully guaranteed yet, but it's, it's a really cool idea that a lot of folks have worked on to try to bring a, a Europa lander together. Uh, there's a lot of potential in our solar system. But then, you know, People listening might know that we, we now know of a confir of confirmed over 4,000 exoplanets, uh, worlds around other stars. Now, when I was a kid, when I was born, we didn't have confirmation of any exoplanets. It wasn't until the 1990s, the early 1990s, that we, we started making the first detections. And now, now over 4,000, uh, it makes me think in, in the next decade or two or three, how many tens of thousands of exoplanets we have to look at and as we get better and better telescope technology with the next generation of space telescopes, we might start being able to really look into the atmospheres of these worlds and really look at the chemistry 
And it might be that some of the first detections of life come from that. I mean, for a layperson, it basically seems like it's a certainty somewhere else, right? Like it's yeah, just a matter yeah. of finding it. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard that phrase before, you know, that, that if we are the only thing, you know, it sure is a waste of space. And that comes from just doing the math. When you start looking at the, the numbers, uh, and, and when people start we're using that phrase, when you heard that phrase in the movie Contact, for instance, or heard Carl Sagan or, or other you know, popularizers of science mention that phrase, that was at a time we didn't have any known exoplanets. They were just talking about stars. They were talking about the, the 100 billion to maybe 400 billion stars in our galaxy and the maybe 100 billion galaxies in the known universe. Those numbers alone start suggesting a lot. But when you look now, with these planet confirmations we've made already, we're now thinking that, that there's at least something like 1.6 planets for every star. And so now we're looking at several hundreds of billions, maybe even a trillion planets in our galaxy alone, which means other galaxies might be also very rich in planets. And if that's the case, then it really starts to feel like it would be a huge waste of space if we're the only show in town. This is the thing that I always wonder about because, I mean, the numbers are so huge when we start talking about them. Is there any chance that – I'll be really dramatic here. Like somebody just forgot to carry the one somewhere and in reality, it's it's just the solar system and we accidentally messed up the math and there isn't all of this else because it just seems to me to be so like mind-bogglingly huge. Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, it, it, kind of, it kind of takes my mind into a science fiction place, actually. Uh, and so uh, ima- imagine, if you would, you know, that, that if you were born on a planet with an atmosphere so thick that you couldn't see the sky and so that you never saw the stars, what, what would you think about yourself? You know, uh, uh, so Kevin Hand is an astrobiologist. He was recently on my show asking astrobiologists for NASA Astrobiology. Uh, he has a recent book out called Alien Oceans, where he also suggested this, this thought experiment using Europa. Uh, so if you were an organism born into an ocean environment under a thick, icy crust where you never saw the stars, uh, what, what, and, and you became intelligent, like, what would you think about yourself? What would your stories, what would your science be? You know, for us, most of our scientific endeavor came from trying to better understand how our lives work here on Earth and how the stars move in the skies above. You know, the earliest humans, you know, they were very in tune with the heavens above. They watched the movements of the stars. They watched these weird things that looked like stars but moved in strange patterns uh, that we now call planets. Uh, you know, and they, they wanted to know, like, what's going on up there? And so, you know, our science, you know, all, all the things that led us to now with our smartphones and, you know, our telecommunications technology and our Teslas that can go self-driving down the highway and all these things that we're doing now with artificial intelligence, all of that comes from those early days when we just wanted to better understand, you know, how to better grow our crops, how to, how to better prepare for the seasons, what's happening in the skies above us. Uh, and so, you know, if you, if you were born into a world without the stars, I mean, imagine what that would be like. What, what, what would your science be then? You know, would you ever, would you ever want to leave your world? Would you ever want to launch a rocket? Would you have any reason to? And I, I don't know the answer to that. And the interesting thing is, even if you forgot to carry a one, when it comes to the vastness of the cosmos out there, even if you missed a number or two, you really wouldn't be that far off. The numbers become so staggeringly large. What do you think happens when we find it? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, uh, well, for one thing, 
I will have a job forever. <laughs> Every astrobiologist, we will be automatically employed for the rest of our lives uh, if we find alien life. Uh, you know, there, there have been different ideas. You know, a, a lot of people in science fiction and, and film have suggested that you know, we, if we find alien life, that people will go, you know, lose their minds, and, and you know, there'll be riots in the streets, and you know, and, and it'll just be a huge issue, and then like religions won't know what to do with themselves. You know, people who are religious won't know what to do with themselves, and things like that. And I think that's not right. I think that there, there might be some people who would handle it in a, in a poor manner. But I think in general, I think all of us, if we found alien life, I, I think it'd be a good moment for us to reflect together about you know the fact that, one, we are no longer unique in the universe, that there is other life, but that it, you know, it would give us a chance to finally start saying, hey, you know, we are part of this biosphere, this is our life, we now have another example to go study and learn more. Uh, comparative biology at that level would teach us so much about what life really is. Are you ready for some harder slash listener submitted questions? Sure. What is the Fermi paradox? Uh, the Fermi paradox, as it's called, it comes from uh, an Italian American physicist named Enrico Fermi, uh, who was working on uh, some of the early work with you know nuclear energy and trying to better understand uh, physics. Uh, so Fermi was out to a lunch with some other scientists, and, and they were discussing you know, what we were just discussing. They were discussing the vastness of the cosmos. And Fermi brought up the, the, this issue um, that if there is alien life out there, if, if we can just assume, uh, just count it as writ, that there is alien life out there and it's everywhere on all these other planets in our, in our galaxy, if there is alien life out there and it is possible to travel faster than light, then where are the aliens? And the, the, and the question there becomes, you know, like, because the stars are so far apart, but if we could ever learn to travel at the speed of light or faster, it would change the rate in which we can get to these other stars. And if that was possible, why aren't there aliens here right now? Why aren't they visiting us? Uh, and so in, in, this, in this issue, you know, maybe, there, maybe there, there aren't beings that can travel faster than light. Maybe travel is very slow for everyone, and it does take tens of thousands or millions of years. But let's assume that even if it even if it took you know a million years or more to travel between stars, still in the history of our of our, of our galaxy of our solar system, there's still been billions of years, and so even then, some beings should have been able to make it here by now. But then we have other issues. You know, maybe we are one of the first. Maybe there are other uh, biospheres out there right now, uh, but maybe we're one of the first ones to actually gain a level of intelligence to start asking ourselves why we're here. Uh, another issue could be the kinds of stars that are out there. Uh, so when a star forms, it forms from these large clouds of gas and dust. Uh, and a lot of the material in there, you might have heard that a lot of our, our, our elements of our bodies come from the nuclear engines inside of stars. Uh, that, that famous phrase that we are star stuff. Uh, and this comes through a process called nucleosynthesis, and it's how elements are made inside of stars. But in the very early universe, in the early history of the galaxy, the earliest stars would have been almost high, all hydrogen, all helium. There wouldn't have been enough time to make a lot of heavier elements. But as those early stars start fusing, they start making heavier elements, they explode, they push other elements out into the universe – then other stars come around, they take in some of that material, and then they start making heavier elements. 
it might be that in the very, you know, the first few billion years of the history of the universe, the history of our galaxy, that there just wasn't enough heavy element material inside of planets for life to arise. Maybe life requires some of this enrichment of heavier elements. And so maybe we needed stars like our sun to make living things. Uh, And if that's the case, maybe younger stars right now are even more enriched in some of these heavy elements. And maybe they're even faster to to have life originate and evolve and do some cool things. Um, You know, we, we just don't know. Um, you know, but the, the idea of Fermi's paradox of, of why aren't they here yet, uh, it's an inter- interesting one to throw your head at. Uh, and I'll throw out another potential solution, and it's, it's one that you'll see pop up a lot in, in various sci-fi and stuff like that. Uh, and this one is kind of the, it's the cosmic zoo idea, like a, a menagerie, uh, where maybe there are aliens out there everywhere, and they're all watching us. They know we're here. They've been watching us evolve through time. And maybe they just think that we're not ready yet. To meet them, um, and that'd be kind of weird too. I mean, but it's not unlike what we do in zoos, um, where we, you know, we put animals in the, in the cages or behind glass so that we can observe them. You know, maybe the Earth right now is just an off-limits area for, area for aliens to watch us. What would be stranger if we meet alien life and it's nothing like we've seen in the movies, or we meet alien life and they look exactly like us? Oh, I love that. That was uh, so Gene Roddenberry uh, around the time of Star Trek: Next Generation was trying to explain, you know, like why are all why are all the characters humanoid? And we, we see that a lot in, in science fiction. You know, a, a lot of the characters look very humanoid, like us. Um, and you know, a lot of that comes from storytelling because when it comes down to it, a lot of our alien science fiction isn't really about the aliens; it's about telling human stories through the alien. But in reality, you know, a lot of us scientists, we we, we really don't have a lot of reason to think that other things would look like us, at least not large multicellular organisms. You know, at the, at the smaller scale, maybe there's lots of things that look like other bacteria that we have here. Maybe cells are very common uh, for life. You know, that, that, that seems like it could be likely that maybe the cell is a common unit for life across the universe. And so maybe that would look similar. And maybe we'll have some things happen similarly. Maybe organelles, for instance, will happen inside of some cells. So maybe things that have things like chloroplasts or, or things like our mitochondria, uh, similar organ organelles inside of cells might have occurred. But when it comes to all the many steps that made these larger scale things, like we see like our fungi and hummingbirds and humans and horses and all of this stuff, you know, that, that's it, it was a lot of steps to get to where we are now to make this happen. And so we don't have as much of a reason to think that if we met aliens, they would look exactly like us. Um, especially if you look through like the, the history of you know animals on Earth. If you look over the past 500 million years, for most of that period of time, the large-scale organisms did not look like you know us you know, and apes and monkeys. Uh, they looked a lot more like dinosaurs. Um, and so you know maybe, maybe if, if large-scale things do look more like more, more like life on Earth, then maybe dinosaur-like life is far more likely um, than human-like life. Um, but it does raise a good question. Maybe there are convergent you know, scenarios in evolution that do drive similar features to occur. Uh, so, for instance, having appendages makes a lot of sense. Appendages allow you to find other ways to move, to get food, to fight off predators, to be a predator. Uh, and then, you know, like our hands have these digits on the end of them that allow us to actually interact with our environment in very special ways. 
And that could be a, a very interesting thing to have happen convergently in evolution. Um, but when it comes down to like the, 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 the ape looking structure of our bodies and you know, our two arms, two legs, you know, and the whole, the whole structure of us, I don't think it's as likely. Um, but I think it'd be pretty groovy if we actually met other human like organisms. Best place right now. Like if you were a betting man, where would you bet we're going to find it first? If I had to throw down money, and I'm going to get some flack for this from my, my astrobiologist friends because everyone has their favorite place. If I had to throw down money, I would say it's going to come from exoplanets. Outside of the solar system. I think outside of our solar system. You know, even though I, I love Mars, I think we definitely should go there. I want to see humans go to Mars uh, to, to, to settle and to explore and to learn more uh, about that world as well as ourselves. Uh, like I said, I love Venus. I really love the icy moons, Europa, Enceladus, Triton, Titan. But honestly, with, with the, the evolution of our telescope technology, as we're discovering more and more about exoplanets, our models are getting better. I, I think you know it's very likely, even in our lifetimes, that we're going to find potential signs of a biosphere on an exoplanet. I hope it's going to be – I mean I know it's not an exoplanet, but I hope somehow it's Pluto – just as a way to get back for everybody for knocking it off of the planet status. Yeah, I mean, Pluto is an interesting little thing, right? Like, you know, even before the, 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 the quote-unquote demotion in 2006, when, when Pluto was renamed to a dwarf planet status, uh, even then we, we knew something weird was going on on the surface of Pluto. We had Hubble Space Telescope images showing us that the surface wasn't all one consistent kind of color, which told us that there was some weird chemistry going on. And so with New Horizons flying by in 2015 and just these remarkable images that came back with all the data that came back of that weird mottled icy surface with so much variation, uh, it was just stunning. Uh, and so, you know, and some people talk about the potential for an ocean inside of Pluto. Um, I don't know if that's likely. I don't think it is personally, um, but maybe in the distant past, long ago, who knows? Um, but it'd be pretty cool if there were Plutonians out there. Best movie about aliens? Mm. Well, I do love science fiction that tries to get it right. Uh, I really enjoyed Europa Report. I love when science fiction tales try to figure out, um, you know, what would alien life really be like? Uh, however, uh, to me, the, the, actually, I'm going I'm to name two films um, because they both hold so much importance for me. Uh, one is the film The Thing. Uh, based on the short story, Who Goes There? Um, and that one's important because it makes us question, you know, what if there is really bizarrely different alien life that can actually consume and replicate life as we know it? Uh, and then the other one is the movie Alien, uh, Ridley Scott's Alien. Um, such an incredible film. And honestly, the, the biology presented in that film, this idea of the, you know, these, these eggs that hatch, these face huggers that then implant uh, this this host phase, you know, inside the host phase, this growing creature that then becomes the xenomorph and pops out. Uh, I really love Alien. I love the whole Alien franchise. Um, I've been a huge fan since I was a kid. And so I, I think Alien's the coolest. What do you think about, like, people who do the Alien Encounters thing and say, like, I saw an alien. I was like, what do you, when you hear that stuff, what do you kind of think? First off, yeah, I, I never want to question someone's belief or their experience. You know, if someone feels like they really experience something, if they really believe it, I don't want to call it a question that belief or experience. But you know, when it comes to science and how science works and why science is so powerful, 
is that you know science is looking at evidence, looking at the data that are out there, and then formulating your opinions about what you actually saw, what you observed, what you experienced. Uh, but the important thing in the science is is that it has to be something like well, you, your conclusion for it to be really be accepted has to be the exact same conclusion something else someone else would make based on those same information. Uh, and so, you know, I personally, like in the nighttime sky, with the idea of UFOs, I've seen things in the nighttime sky before that I can't personally explain. And even though I, I know that scientifically we can explain about ninety or ninety-five percent, uh, something like that, uh, of all the all the claimed uh, observations of UFOs, there's still some small number that we just don't understand. However, jumping from you know I don't know what that is, the whole way to well it must be aliens, is a pretty big jump. Uh, because there's a lot of other things that could be first that we should actually maybe research and try to figure out. Uh, and, and, and there are people who are, are really certain there are aliens here right now. And one of the biggest questions I always have for them uh, is if that's the case, if aliens you know, can travel through these vast cosmic distances between stars, you know, they have the technology to, to make those transits, to hide their spaceships from us so well, to even be down here walking amongst us, if that were the case, then why are they so bad at doing it? Why, why do we see them every now and then? If they were that good, we would never see them. That's pretty much all the questions I got. What's coming up next for you, man? What research are you working on? That kind of stuff. So many cool things. So I am working on a paper right now uh, on some, some structures, some geological structures at my field site in the Arctic that are relevant to Mars. Uh, so these structures are, are very rich in, in iron and sulfur. Uh, they're, they're structures we call gossins, and they might be really important for our future astrobiological studies on Mars. Uh, I'm currently doing a lot of science communication work through the Marble Space, uh, so I do a lot in trying to find cooler ways to share science with the public. Uh, I have my show. It's uh, Ask an Astrobiologist. We're funded through NASA Astrobiology, and we have a, a new astrobiologist on uh, talking with me every month about their research, about astrobiology, we know in the field, and also talking about how to get into astrobiology as a career. Um, and then uh, also this summer, I have uh, a large number of research associates, uh, interns, who are working with me in both science communication, uh, as well as a project for the Center for Life Detection out of NASA Ames, where we're developing a knowledge base of biosignatures uh, for astrobiologists to uh, come together as a community and say, you know, what are the signs of life that we're looking for out there? I want to thank Dr. Lau so much for joining us. If you want to connect with him, we have a link to him on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we've also included his information on the RSS feed that's on this podcast. He's got a really cool show, too. If you're really interested in learning more about astrobiology and how to become an astrobiologist, we've also included a link to his show on the RSS feed that's along with this podcast. There's just, I think that's just a huge question for us, right? It's something that everybody at some point in their lives has think it, thought about. Are we alone? Okay. Now let's go ahead and give John Shaw a call. Hello? Have you ever put your hands under your chin and tried to push your own head off? <laughs> uh, it's usually not, no, not to push my own head off, no. What were you doing? It's usually just to count the number of chins I've acquired. Okay, well just try it real quick. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, okay, let's see here. Oh yeah, there's a lot of pressure there at the back of the neck. Yeah, I think do you think you could actually push your own head off? <laughs> That's why I love being a part of this podcast. I've never thought about that. Um, no, I don't. I don't think. I don't think you could. You can would, you? I don't think that you could generate the upward pressure. I also think that if you really started doing something, most people would probably stop. Right? Like if you heard a crack, you'd probably stop. I would assume. I mean. Wh- you're going to break a couple vertebrae. I don't like, you're not going to rip your head off. The tendons are too, I believe they're too strong to do that with just, you know, your, your one hand, I think. Well, I mean, you could use both hands or you could have like two bigger people stand on your feet and push your head up. But I think it is possible to rip someone's head off. Uh, I'm going to say the contrary. I do not believe you can rip somebody's head off. I mean, if you've got enough people, I bet you could do it. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm just talking about maybe a max of three people with an average-sized man or woman's head. I don't believe that you can. I think it can be done. Here, here's my other question. If you turn on the TV one day and suddenly you see, like, an alien life form giving a press conference, like, we have established alien life and it's here on Earth, what is your reaction? Like, I... I just turn it on. I have no idea. I just turn it on, and there's a an alien talking. I'm probably going to say that's not real. Okay, but if it actually is real, like it's real, aliens have come to the Earth. What is your reaction? <laughs> I, I I don't know. To be honest, I mean, I, I would probably just sit there and just say, "Well, I guess it's time to buy that 12 gauge." <laughs> but then again, who says they're here for world domination? I think I would you would imagine that if they have the technology to travel here they're either just going to kill all of us or they're just going to leave us alone completely like there isn't going to be anything in the middle in my opinion because you're either coming here to take over or you're coming here just to like check it out and move along I always wonder you know are there aliens among us already do you think there could be aliens among us right now? Uh, I, I mean, I think it's possible that there could be aliens among us. You could be an alien for all I know. Okay, but let's just clarify this. Do you think that there are aliens here right now, or do you just think that there could be aliens here right now? No, I think there could be a possibility of. I don't, I don't, I don't believe there are, but you know, I, I think there could be a possibility. Okay, what's your percentage chance? What is the percentage chance in your <laughs> mind that there's aliens here right now? I'm going to go probably a good 36%. Wow, that's pretty high. I know, I, I but I'm talking, I mean, I guess uh, I guess it doesn't matter, America alone or the world. I mean, I'm still probably going to go, you know, a good 30% chance what? that there is some kind of alien life form somewhere what do you, on earth already what do you mean wait a minute are you saying there's a 36 percent chance that they're in the united states but like a 30 percent chance that they're in europe is that what you're trying to say no i i would give it like the bigger percentage to like the world and then like if i had to narrow it down to countries you know what i mean then i would start taking off percentage points okay so wh- like, what's your percentage point for poland then <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. Let's, I'll say 11%. 11% at Poland? What do you got on Romania? <laughs> Nobody cares. Can we just oh, move on? Oh, wow. That's fucking rude. 
Okay, but is the okay is the United States your highest percentage where there's aliens, or do you have another country that you think there's a better chance there could be? I'm gonna say Russia probably will get my highest percentage. You know what? I somehow agree with that. I agree with that actually. For some reason, I believe that there could there's a better chance that aliens are in Russia than they are in the United States. I would say any any government that isn't doesn't have some kind of open policy where you can at least FOIA records or get some kind of official word, probably are the ones that are harboring aliens or have aliens. Okay. How about Brazil? <laughs> uh, probably like 20%. Okay. They're in the middle. All right. What country do you least think aliens are at? <laughs> oh, that's a tough one. Um, I'm going to say like the hotter countries. You know, they like probably Africa, most of the Middle East, you know. No one wants to live where it's super hot. Have you never seen Predator? I have, of course I've seen Predator. One of the greatest movies ever. Yeah, and as we learned in Predator, aliens like hot places. Specifically jungle environments in which they can blend in. I mean, I, I don't disagree with you on that. I mean, what, uh, at least on the movie. But, you know, I, I don't think that's what aliens would look like is Predator. What would you think would be weirder? If aliens look like nothing that we have ever imagined, or they show up and they look exactly like us. Oh, I, I think if they showed up and they, like they were just looked human, I think that would be the weirdest thing ever for for a, a bunch of reasons. But I think the the one that immediately comes to my mind is like, holy shit! The, you know, these are like, am I, am I the alien? Then are they the aliens? Who's the alien? That's a good question. What if its name is like Todd too? Like, hey, I'm from the planet. I'm from the planet Beetle Box. My name's Todd. <laughs> what and guy's name Todd? Like, if any, if your name is Todd. Seen the George Carlin skit for weak man names. You need to Google it right now because it's the best. You think Todd? I think Dylan is a weak man name. <laughs> yeah, Dylan's pretty weak. Um, Tucker. Kyle, all weak guys' names. Okay, what are are you? Are we moving on? What are we doing? <laughs> now that we've offended Romania, Poland, Brazil, guys named Tucker. Um, yes, let's move on here. Uh, let's give some shout outs, shall we? Um, so thanks to everyone who checked us out, liked our stuff, viewed us. I'll save you the bit. Um, let's start off with Eddie. Don't say, Mara. don't say, I'll save you the bit after you just did it. I had like three more sentences. Okay, how many total sentences was it? If you got through, if you got through more than thirty five percent, then you can't say I'm saving you the bit. I think you should just let me go with it and not cut me off. I would just like you to just you know be honest. I'm an honest person, all right. Yeah. If I I was called you an alien, and then I realized I probably shouldn't call you an alien because it could have other other contexts that I didn't mean. Uh, anyways, all right. Okay. Let's start from the top again. Uh, so big thanks to Eddie, Lara Merritt, uh, Rodney, Savannah, Cassie, appreciate y'all, uh, Mark Richards, Rachel, uh, Tori, Peter, and Jordan. Appreciate y'all checking us out this week. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you know where we're at. Uh, and I, you know, I gotta give another shameless plug to, to our, to, to our lovely t-shirts. It is Father's Day this weekend coming up, so if you want that gift, expedited shipping you'll get them by uh, at least august if you order them you know by the weekend so 
they're look, they're a great gift if you like your dad and if you don't like your dad at the same time. <laughs> How, wh- what do you think the percentage of people, if they had to answer honestly, would say that they like their dad? Man, you know, I want to say half and half, but I actually think it's probably lower than that. I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's like 39% and that's it. I I agree with you. I I got into a stupid debate over the weekend about which parent, just in general, the ma- the mother or the father is more likely to let their child down. Well, it's always the father, right? Yeah, I mean that's pretty much that was the that was like the pretty much the you know the the consensus. Okay. Um, but I don't know. There was there was some votes for the mother too, but you know, moms always seem to skate by because they gave birth to you or something. I guess the the person who created you know the child doesn't get any credit. No big deal. Well, I mean, it takes two people to create a child. Only one actually gives birth to the child. I know how the birds and the bees work, you son of a bitch. Do you? Do you? <laughs> I, I don't know. We're still trying to figure out if either one of my kids are mine. So, if you have to ask, the answer is no. That's <laughs> that's pretty much the best way to tell. If you have to ask, the answer is no. For those who don't know, my firstborn, my wife and I both have dark hair and dark eyes. My firstborn has red hair and blue eyes. Yeah, dude. That's that's. So. Does anybody in your family have red hair? Uh, my aunt does, but, you know, so there is the possibility of, but it, it's like a 5% chance. Okay, I lost interest. <laughs> it can't be any worse than you trying to explain Predator. <laughs> no one needs to explain Predator. People know you Predator. You know it's true. People know it's Predator. All right, uh, let's see here. Let's let's learn a little more about Nick. Um this is kind of a current situation question, so if you want to answer it, feel free. If not, I understand. Would you rather be tear gassed or tased? I've been both, actually. Oh, well, explain that. What, uh, in the fewest words possible, what's worse and which one would you rather have? Tear gas is pretty fucking awful. I'll yeah, tell you like, that. It's pretty, it's because, so I used to be a reporter for anybody who maybe is wondering, but I've been tased as part of like a thing where you go and you train with the police department and see what it's like and you get tased and they and that kind of stuff and I've covered some riots where you get tear gassed. Tear gassing is by far fucking worse. It's it's yeah. awful. Like that that was my point was like I've been tased and like that would be like this you know I I would never want it to happen but like I've never been tear gassed it, but I've been told that's worse than almost anything. So that you know that's where I was getting out of that. Um Speaking of the the depressing questions here, um, buried alive or drowned? Oh, I think I'd rather drowned, actually, because that's going to be fairly quick. If you're buried alive, you're going to be in there for a while. I mean, right? yeah, okay. if you're a bigger guy like me, it's going to take a lot of clumps of dirt. I was going to say more along the lines of your body mass would allow you to survive longer. <laughs> I don't know what the dirt has to do with it necessarily. I mean, you're six feet down, you're six feet down. I mean, I guess I was thinking like the old school like movies where like I wasn't in anything. I was just having dirt thrown on me. Well, they, I mean, you, you got to have some sort of grave. They don't just like lay you down on flat earth and start throwing dirt on you. No, I would be six feet down, but I wouldn't be in a box. I would just be, you know what I mean? You would just be exposed. I just don't tell you how it's not going to take that much. What, three or four shovels more? 
I was kind of making fun of myself, but you like are making this into like. I a, just don't understand. A, I don't think any mafia people have been ever like, let's bury the guy alive. Like, no, he's too fat. There's too many. <laughs> I don't want to do all that shoveling. Like, it was more of like a joke, but you're like seriously thinking about, it, which is great. I mean, that's you know. Well, it's it's just ridiculous. You're, I mean, like, thinker. if you've already dug the hole, it's not going to be that much more difficult to throw dirt on the bigger guy than it is the smaller guy. That's irrelevant. All right, do you have any happy questions, or are you just negative all the time? No, this one's kind of a troll question, but I, I wanted to throw it in there anyways, because I already know what you're going to say. Then why but ask? If you had to have then why ask one it? device for the rest of your life, uh, would you choose your BlackBerry? Or uh, like a gaming console, like a you know, like a Switch, like a Nintendo Switch or a PS Vita. Oh, so the idea being like you can have a BlackBerry, which is still kind of, sort of relative, relevant, and can kind no, of, sort not. of do no, its job, no, or something that's going to be completely irrelevant. I don't have a BlackBerry anymore, by the way. Thanks for keeping up on the times. Um, <laughs> you got wait. When did you get rid of the BlackBerry? Dude, first of all, we text back and forth all the time. You can tell if somebody has an iPhone by the text messages. I, it's been like a year, man. I've never even paid attention to what color your, your bubbles are. I'm so angry right now. How could, what do you mean you <laughs> never noticed? Like, you look at your phone. By a visual cue alone, it should have sunk in over the last year. I mean, I mean. Anyways, I'm actually quite excited about our top five because we've had the same number one the last two weeks. And I don't think we're going to this week. Okay. All right. So our top five is top five most annoying types of family members. What's your number five? Uh, I have the know-it-all relative. Mm, I thought about that. That's just outside my top five. That's an honorable mention for me. <laughs> The problem is there's you know, too many know-it-alls, right? Are you going, who's more annoying as the know-it-all relative? Know-it-all, like, older relative, like uncle, aunt, grandparent, or relatively same age know-it-all? Uh, definitely the, the, the elder know-it-all, because then they want to sit there and bestow stories and knowledge, quote-unquote, to you. And before you know, you've fallen asleep seven times, and they've told you the same story, you know, seven times in the span of an hour have you ever actually talked to someone and saw them fall asleep while you were talking to them <laughs> uh no never while i've been talking to them i've had family members who have fallen asleep talking and telling stories <laughs> yeah that's, that's always a good one <laughs> hey, and, uh, they'll tell it again when, when they wake up getting out of it you know like right when you go to get up from the chair they wake up and they pick up right where they left off that's that's rough. My number five is the perv uncle. <laughs> you know, I I thought about putting that in, but I I I've never really you know never really experienced that, so I you know I've never didn't put it in. Well, I have a lot of my sisters about my age. I have a lot of female cousins that are about my age. It's always been pretty awkward. Like, oh, this is oh, that's yeah, that's gross. That's weird. <laughs> Like, that's weird yeah i mean you know why why is cousin jerry just sitting there staring at me it's always it's always a, what's your number four i have the over emotional relative okay like i didn't um, think of that a couple of you know of, of examples like you know you're at a relatives for thanksgiving and you say the wrong thing or you know, you don't send them a birthday card 
So they send you seven or eight text messages wanting to know why they didn't get a birthday card from you. Ooh, at first I didn't know what the hell you were talking about. Now I'm kind of picking up on like, okay, yeah, you can't if you don't if you don't get a birthday card or a present from a relative, you can't ask about it. You know, if another family member can ask why you didn't do this for this relative, but you cannot directly ask about it. Yeah, I, you know, it's for sure the over emotional. I, I actually think I should have put it higher because I think it's it's a more common occurrence. But I, uh, you know, I got some other good ones. So, what's your number four? Uh, the older single aunt. <laughs> it, uh, now, like, paint the picture. Like, is this the kind of aunt that you go to like events with, and they're always just. Man, I remember when I had a date 12 years ago when I was happy. Now I'm just fat and drunk. It's just a combination of all of that and the above. And they ask you endless fucking questions about everything that you're doing. And you're just, oh, look, I don't want to be here. Nobody wants to be here. The only one who wants to be here is you. We So just, that's, that's I honestly, I, I could have put that even higher. <laughs> that's a good one. That's, yeah, I've... <laughs> Um, my number three, I have the pretend not to be trashy relative. <laughs> That's a good one. That's and, a good one. I like it. I like it. it I mean, it's, it's pretty much self-explanatory, right? You know, they sh you, you have a get together and even though you know they're trashy, they still try not to be trashy. And within 30, I'll give it, you know what? I'll give it a minute of them first opening their mouth. They go right back to being, yeah, that's trashy Trisha. Like they show up with Mountain Dew, but it's not cans. It's like the sixteen ounce bottle. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, I mean, or like you know, you're having a, a cookout, right? And, and you ask them to bring alcohol, and they bring you know forties. I don't, I don't see what the problem with that is. Honestly, <laughs> maybe they want to play Edward Forty Hands. Wine, okay. That kind of person. First of all, if you paid attention to this podcast, shout out, shout out to uh, sommelier Sarah Tracy, who was on here one time. She's a professional sommelier, very knowledgeable about wine. She says box wine's making a comeback. It, it is. My mother-in-law was just in town and brought us uh, a box of boxed wine. And hmm. um, I can guarantee you I will not be uh, participating in the Car Bordeaux at all. So, anyways. Okay. What? <laughs> What's your number three? My number three is just cousins in general. <laughs> just every family member. <laughs> okay, just cousins in general. Think about this. How, what percentage of your cousins do you actually like? 30%? I mean, the ones that I know, I I wasn't exposed to my unimmediate family very much, so I don't really know my cousins. So it's probably more like... 10% for me. Yeah, I'm telling you. I don't think that most people like more than 30 to 40% of their cousins. I really don't. <laughs> and cousins are the like, cousins run the whole thing. Right? You got the trashy cousin, you got the cousin who you just you don't know what's going on there. It's just there's so many different you've got every single kind of family relative fits into the cousin category. So my number 3 is cousins. Okay. So kind of like a a generalization of just yeah, cousins, cousins okay. in general. Um, so my number two is the overachieving relative. The one who like goes out of their way to try to be nice or, or to try to be family-ish. And, and like that's not what you want at all. And instead of, you know, it being nice, it just turns into a constant fucking annoyance. 
I don't know what you're talking about. You have a relative who's nice to you and you don't like it? No, no, I'm, I'm not saying it's me per se. I'm just saying it's, you know, it's like say you have a child and you have that one aunt or cousin who just, I'll come over, I'll come over, I'll do this, I'll show up unexpectedly. Oh, you want to go out? Well, I'll be right here without, you know, letting you know. Oh, you're going to a party? Okay, well, let me hold the baby and then I'll bring her back in five hours without asking you. Well, I think you're, I think you kind of really, why don't you just say that relative's name right now? <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm not throwing anyone on their bus. I'm just, you know, I'm, it's the over, like the overexcited cousin, you know, or our relative. Just, I have family, like, so that's going to be my entire world. Yeah, I don't, I actually, when you first started, I actually zoned completely out. Like, literally zoned completely out and came back in to wonder, why are you so mad at somebody who likes their family? I feel like you're the problem in this. Uh, no, I just, I, I I don't think, I mean, I mean, maybe I am. I mean, maybe I'm number one on my relatives list. I don't know. You might be the number one of your other relatives. <laughs> That's a real strong possibility. I mean... Would not surprise me. I, I'm not always this pleasant, believe it or not. Um, you know what? I have two that's a, currently a blank space. I couldn't decide what two is. There's so many that could be in there for me in the number two spot. Like, I don't like the gossiping one. I probably don't like the story for everything person. That's that's what I'm going to go with my number two. This guy's story about fucking everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Without giving names, do you have a specific story that comes to mind where you were just like, are you fucking kidding me? Uh, no, I mean, I try to avoid my family, so I don't really <laughs> – it's probably been legitimately 10-plus years since I've seen most of them. So I can't really remember any good stories, but I just remember somebody like, hey, I see you brought over sweet potatoes for Thanksgiving. I remember when I was uh, – shut the fuck up. <laughs> That was 17 goddamn years ago. And they I, rem like, I remember when I had was looking for sweet potatoes, and they didn't have any at Frank's Market, so I had to go down to the Albertsons. That's on 15. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> you got the fucking things. They're here. They're here. Who cares? They're sweet potatoes. What's your number one? <laughs> um, uh, the, the, Do you know? I didn't, I, I didn't write this down correctly. The, 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 polit the, like, the politic... Going against everything relative. So you always have that, that one relative that's, you know, too far left, too far right. Or, or I could say, hey, I love the Detroit Tigers. And they're going to say, ah, you know, actually the Tigers are not very good just to get you fucking going. Yeah, that's, that's, are you going troll or are you going politics? You know what? I, I, that's a great word. I'll go troll, the troll relative. Okay. I, I went the political one where you're okay. just. Like, oh, and I don't care what side, if it's far left, if it's far right, it, you just don't bring it up, right? You, unless yeah, that, you, you don't. Unless the, unless a politician is making a law specifically against your family, like, <laughs> this is the Vinzant law stipulating that no Vinzants can come within this amount of distance of anybody else, then no politics should be brought up whatsoever. I don't know how it is with the Vinzant uh, household, but... When it's ever brought up in my family gatherings, it's always usually by someone who's very drunk, and it's just it, it just it's never good. It's never good sober usually, and it's definitely never good drunk. So I have an uncle. You could start a countdown. You could like start a <laughs> countdown from once a whole family arrives. Like, all right, 
We've got an hour and 15 minutes till this starts happening. <laughs> so you better get as many drinks in as possible so we can leave. <laughs> we got to be out of here in an hour and 10 because otherwise Uncle So-and-So is going to fucking go in on the left wingers and we got to listen to this whole thing. <laughs> what's, your, oh, man. what's your honorable mention? Uh, so yeah, so I have, I have the, the workout relative, like the, you know, the relative that's really in shape and really buff and, you know, you just, just loves to flaunt it. And, you know, you go to get a beer and they're like, you know, you know, that's not very good for you. Yeah. It's not going to be good for your forehead when I smash this over your fucking face either, is it? That's, there's always one like, oh, that's not good for you relative. <laughs> <laughs> that's not a good idea. Let me make yeah. my own mistakes. Uh, what else you got? Uh, the I put down the judgy relative, um, which can apply to a variety of things. And then I also, kind of like what you had, I, I have the, the never stops talking uh, relative where you just want to, you know, clothesline them so they'll shut up for 10 seconds. Um, and then I, I have the, the, I put down the holiday relative, meaning, you know, the family members who just get really excited about the holidays, but they're the only ones. I have the drunk, the know-it-all, the bragger. That's about all I really got. Which which category do you feel like you probably would potentially fit into? You know, I I, I think, and I don't know, I don't I don't know if we touched on it per se, but I with my family, they probably would view me as the the uppy up or you know what I mean? Like the, maybe the bragger, I guess. I've never heard the phrase uppy up in my, Oh, the one upper. Is that what you're trying to? No, like the, uh, like you're better than everybody else. Yeah. That's the one upper dude. Yeah. Well, but like, I, I don't, I don't like tell stories to try to one up. I just, it's like the persona I think I give to certain members of my family. You could see, I could see you being like a, your rest of your family thinks you're a dick. <laughs> you know, well, oh, I mean, what, what about, what about you? I feel like you fall into that same category times 10. I'm probably, I would actually, I mean, I could see that, but I don't think I really fit into that. I, I'm going to be the storyteller. I'm going to be annoying. I, <laughs> I can see it coming. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of Profoundly Pointless. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. We still have those t-shirts that are available. People are actually buying them. When we put them out, I was like, all right, we're going to sell one of these to John because I'm not giving him one for free. That's for damn sure. And maybe to some of our parents. But we really appreciate anybody who's picked one of those up. We've heard from people who've bought them. They're really nice t-shirts. Like legitimately, the quality is really nice and the design is pretty cool. I've even seen pictures of people wearing them. They may have been wearing them on their way out to throw them on the trash, but that's irrelevant. They still bought it. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.